listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 21st, 2024. I'm JJ Gretemeyer from Drake University. Here's our first story. Iowa Legislature, Dawson says tax bills to be split. Competing tax reform proposals to be considered. Tom Barton. Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau, Iowa Senate Republican advanced Governor Kim Reynolds' legislation that would accelerate previously planned state income tax reductions. However, the top Senate Republican on tax policies said legislators in the coming two weeks also will advance their own proposal, which includes an eventual elimination of the state income tax. Republicans on a Senate subcommittee Monday advanced Senate study bill 3038, the governor's proposed tax bill that would speed up state individual income tax cuts passed two years ago, provide a poverty tax cut for the commercial child care centers and lower taxes that business businesses pay to fund benefits for unemployed workers. Senator Dan Dawson, R. Council Bluffs, the Republicans who lead the Senate Ways and Means Committee told reporters these components will be considered as separate bills in the coming weeks, along with his own bill, Senate Study Bill 3141, to gradually eliminate the state individual income tax. Reynolds' bill would accelerate income tax cuts passed in 2022 that started to take effect this year, as is the law would gradually reduce personal income taxes to a flat 3.9% in 2026. The governor this year proposed lowering the state income tax retroactively to 3.65% this year and 3.5% next year. The proposal would reduce Iowan state income taxes and thus limit future state revenue growth by $3.8 billion over the first five years. Despite the tax cuts already delivered, Iowa ended the year with a $1.83 billion surplus. $902 million in reserve funds and $2.7 billion in the taxpayer relief fund. Molly Severn, the governor's legislative liaison, said during the subcommittee meeting. The state is over-collecting from Iowans and they deserve to keep more of their hard-earned money. House and Senate Democratic leaders have said further income tax cuts would disproportionately benefit the wealthy while leaving hundreds of thousands of Iowans who pay no income taxes with little to no benefits. Reynolds' office estimates a family of four with an income of about $79,000 would see a tax savings of more than 25% under her proposal. A single mother of two making about $47,500 would see an average tax savings of more than 42%. GOP plan would use money from state's taxpayer relief fund. The tax cuts would be paid for using one-time money in the taxpayer relief fund. Dawson and Representative Bobby Kaufman, R. Wilton, have proposed investing that money and using the profits to ratchet down the state income tax rate over time, putting Iowa on a path to eliminate the individual income tax. If the trust fund has sufficient dollars and sales tax growth, hits a certain trigger, the income tax rates will be automatically reduced. Dawson emphasized the importance of responsible management of the taxpayer relief fund and the need for fiscal notes and larger public dialogue to ensure responsible decision-making on how best to use the state's budget surplus. We're talking about one-time money, and when it's gone, it's gone, Dawson said. 
While calling the governor's bill a bold plan, he said Senate Republicans will start to advance their own legislation in the next couple of weeks. And I really do think it's important that we do get fiscal notes for both these pieces of legislation and have a larger public dialogue, Dawson said. Dawson added, we owe it to Iowa since we've accumulated those monies in the taxpayers' relief fund to really kind of think through responsibly what a long-term plan is. Officials representing Iowa business and taxpayer advocacy groups applauded the governor's bill. It's important to note that all of this is based on a firm foundation of fiscal discipline and the work that you all have done to make sure that the tax reform packages in the past and the ones that are considered this year are always going to be sustainable and forward-looking, said Chris Hagenau, president of Iowans for Tax Relief. We think this is going to make Iowa much more competitive and allow Iowans to keep more of their hard-earned dollars and make Iowa a much better place to live, work, and raise a family. Democrats' plan would shift tax burden to lower-income Iowans. The governor's bill also calls for lowering taxes that businesses pay to fund benefits for unemployed workers. Under her proposal, Iowa would cut the taxable wage base in half and reduce unemployment taxes by about 40%. Reynolds' office estimates that will save Iowa employers more than $800 million over five years. Helping companies of all sizes prosper, especially small businesses, Severn said, and making Iowa more competitive. Senate Minority Leader Pam Jochum, DWK, I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong, I'm going to spell out the middle and last name, Uh, J-O-C-H-U-M, and then it's D-D-U-B-U-Q-U-E, who served on the subcommittee and said Reynolds' plan would unfairly shift the tax burden to lower-income individuals and families while providing significant tax cuts to the wealthy. Jochum and representatives for Common Good Iowa and Iowa Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO, emphasized the need to invest in quality of life issues to attract new workers to the state. They also worried that Iowa's unemployment trust fund will face challenges in the long term if faced with a downturn in the economy and business tax rates are an increase to keep the trust fund alive. Jochum said business leaders in Iowa are asking for investment in quality of life issues to attract new workers while child care workers are struggling with low wages and difficulty filling positions. Ann Disher, I'm going to spell that out as well, D-I-S-C-H-E-R, executive director of Common Good Iowa, a liberal advocacy organization, said lawmakers' proposals would blow a huge hole in the budget. Under the 2022 tax changes that are being implemented, we already face enormous revenue threats in education, health care, and other services that help Iowans succeed. Deicher told lawmakers Monday, and of course this bill will make things worse and worse faster, and will cost about $1.7 billion this year. Iowa lost $57 million in tax revenue in 2022 and 2023, and will lose close to $5 billion over the next five years, about 7.8% of the state's general fund according to a report by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a progressive think tank that analyzes the impact of federal and state government budget policies. 
Jochum asserted cutting the income tax won't generate enough economic activity to make up for the revenue losses and force the state to rely more heavily on regressive sales taxes or property taxes to bring in significant revenue. So I would hope that we are going to slow this down and really spend a lot of time dissecting it and really understanding the long-term impact this is going to have on our state in the years to come, Jochum said. That's the end of that story. I really like that story. I think that it would be amazing if taxes were lowered for all people. Also, for the pictures on this, there's a picture of Iowa Senate Minority Leader Pam Jochum uh, speaking during the opening day of the Iowa legislative session on Monday, January 8th, 2023. And there's also a photo of uh, State Representative Bobby Kaufman and State Senator Dan Dawson uh, speaking with reporters on Thursday, February 1st, 2024 at the Iowa State Capitol. On to the next story, uh, AEA proposal hearing this evening at Capitol. Iowa House lawmakers will hold a public hearing Wednesday on a proposal to change the funding and oversight structure of Iowa's area education agencies. The bill which House Republicans proposed after they blocked a proposal from Governor Kim Reynolds to more dramatically change the agencies advanced last week out of a House committee. Under House File 2612, schools will retain their state's special education funding, but they still would be required to spend that money with AEA for special education support services. Schools also would receive state funds dedicated to education and media services, but would be allowed to spend that with an AEA or with another party. The measure also would move some of the oversight and budget decisions of the local agencies under the Iowa Department of Education. The public hearing will be held at 5 p.m. Wednesday in room 103 at the Iowa State Capitol in Des Moines. People interested in speaking must sign up on the Iowa Legislature website and must speak in person. Members of the public can also leave written comments on the Legislature website. House Republicans last week heard input on the bill and suggested it may see changes moving forward. Senate Republicans last week advanced a different amended version of Reynolds' proposal out of a committee. The bill, Senate File 2386, would allow schools to retain most of their special education funding and they could choose to use that money with an AEA or with another party like a private company. That is the end of that story, and on to the next. States look to protect health-related data. Reports show phone locations used to send users anti-abortion ads. Some state governments and federal regulators were already moving to keep individuals' reproductive health information private. When a U.S. Senator's recent report offered a new jolt, describing how cell phone location data was used to send millions of anti-abortion ads to people who visited Planned Parenthood offices. Federal law bars medical providers from sharing health data without a patient's consent, but doesn't prevent digital tech companies from tracking menstrual cycles or an individual's location and selling it to data brokers. Legislation for federal bans have never gained momentum, largely because of opposition from the tech industry. Whether that should change has become another political fault line in a nation where most Republican-controlled states have restricted abortion, including 14 with bans, in place at every stage of pregnancy. And most Democratic ones have sought to protect access since the U.S. Supreme Court in 2022 overturned Roe v. Wade. 
Abortion rights advocates fear that if such data is not kept private, it could be used not only in targeted ads, but also in law enforcement investigations or by abortion opponents looking to harm those who seek to end pregnancies. It isn't just sort of creepy, said Washington State Representative Vendana Slatter, the sponsor of a law her state adopted last year to rein in unauthorized use of health information. It's actually harmful. But so far, there's no evidence of widespread use of this kind of data in law enforcement investigations. We're generally talking about a future risk, not something that's happening on the ground yet, said Albert Fox Khan, executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project and an advocate of protections. The report last week from Senator Ron Wyden, an Oregon Democrat, showed the biggest known anti-abortion ad campaign directed to people who had been identified as having visited abortion providers. Wyden's investigation found that the information gathered by a non-defunct data broker called Near Intelligence was used by ads from the Veritas Society, a nonprofit founded by Wisconsin Right to Life. The ads targeted people who visited 600 locations in 48 states from 2019 through 2022. There were more than 14 million ads in Wisconsin alone. Wyden called on the Federal Trade Commission to intervene in the bankruptcy case for near to make sure the location information collected on Americans was destroyed and not sold to another data broker. He also asked the Securities Exchange Commission to investigate whether the company committed securities fraud by making misleading statements to investors about the senator's investigation. It's not the first time the issue has come up. Massachusetts reached a settlement in 2017 with an ad agency that ran a similar campaign nearly a decade ago. The FTC sued one data broker, Kotrava, over similar claims in 2022 in an ongoing case and settled last month with another X-Mode Social and its successor, Outlogic, which the government said sold location data of even users who opted out of such information sharing. X-Mode was also found to have sold location data to the U.S. military. In both cases, the FTC relied on a law against unfair or deceptive practices. States are also passing or considering their own laws aimed specifically at protecting sensitive health information. Connecticut and Nevada adopted similar laws last year. New York enacted one that bars using tracking around health care facilities. California and Maryland took another approach, enacting laws that prevent computerized health networks from sharing information about sensitive health care with other providers without consent. Illinois, which already had a law limiting how health tracking data measures, heart rates, steps, and others can be shared, adopted a new one last year that took effect January 1st and that bans providing government license plate reading data to law enforcement and state with abortion bans. Bills addressing the issue in some form have been introduced in several states this year, including Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Missouri, South Carolina, and Vermont. Moving on to the next story for today, Western support for Ukraine withers as Putin bides time, but conflict taking toll as Russia maintains pressure on front line. When the invasion of Ukraine began in February 2022, some analysts predicted it might take as few as three days for Russian forces to capture the capital of Kyiv. 
With the war now entering its third year, Russian President Vladimir Putin seems to be trying to turn that initial failure to his advantage by biding his time and waiting for Western support for Ukraine to wither while Moscow maintains its steady military pressure along the front line. Putin's longer timeline still has its downside, with the conflict taking a heavy toll on Russia by draining its economic and military resources and fueling social tensions even as the death of imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny I'm going to read that out for you A-L-E-X-E-I N-A-V-A-L-N-Y serves as a chilling reminder of the Kremlin's ruthless crackdown on dissent Putin had repeatedly signaled a desire to negotiate an end to the fighting but warned that Russia will hold on to its gains This month, he used an interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson to urge the United States to push its satellite, Ukraine, into peace talks, saying, Sooner or later, we will come to an agreement. Some recent developments have fed the Kremlin's optimism. Aid for Ukraine remains stuck in the U.S. Congress, while NATO allies struggle to fill the gap following Ukraine's underperforming counteroffensive last summer. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's decision to dismiss his popular military chief, General Valery Zalzini, don't know if I pronounced that right, I'm going to spell it out, V-A-L-E-R-I-I-Z-A-L-U-Z-H-N-Y-I, disappointed many in the country and worried its Western allies. Donald Trump, who repeatedly claimed he would negotiate a quick deal to end the war if elected, recently spooked NATO by saying he would allow Russia to expand its aggression in Europe if alliance members fail to increase their defense spending. Tatiana Stanovaya, don't know if I pronounced that last name right, S-T-A-N-O-V-A-Y-A, of the Carnegie Russia Eurasia Center said a possible Trump return to the White House would serve Putin's goals. He sees Trump as a figure likely to wreck destruction and believes the consequences of a second Trump presidency would be to weaken the West and deprive Ukraine of support it needs. Stanovaya said, as the Kremlin watches for more signs of crumbling Western support for Ukraine, Russian forces captured the eastern stronghold of Avdivka. I have no idea how to pronounce that. A V D I I V K A over the weekend after a fierce battle in which Ukrainian forces report, reported an increasingly desperate shortage of of munitions. The seizure set the stage for a potential Russian push deeper into Ukraine-held territory. Now I'm moving on to more national and world news. I'm going to start with this little section on the newspaper titled, Briefly, um, Biden Case. Former FBI informant Alexander Smirnov charged with making up a multi-million dollar bribery scheme involving President Joe Biden, his son Hunter, and a Ukrainian energy company had contacts with officials affiliated with Russian intelligence, prosecutors said in court paper Tuesday. Space weapons. Russian President Vladimir Putin declared Tuesday that Moscow has no intention of developing nuclear weapons in space, claiming the country only develops space 
capabilities similar to those of the U.S. Reporter detained. A court in the Russian capital of Moscow ruled to Tuesday to keep Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich in custody pending his trial on espionage charges, which he denies. Mask vines. The Supreme Court on Tuesday rejected appeals from Republican U.S. House Representatives Majory Taylor Green of Georgia, Thomas Massey of Kentucky, and Ralph Norman of South Carolina, who challenged $500 fines for not wearing face coverings on the House floor in 2021. Defector dead. Police said Tuesday they suspect the bullet-riddled body of a man found February 13th in Spain that is of Russian defector Maxim Kuzminov, who escaped across the front line and into Ukraine last year with an army helicopter. Trafficking. Former Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez, who federal prosecutors say ran his Central American nation as a narco state, went on trial Tuesday in Manhattan Federal Court on drug trafficking and weapon charges. That's all for the briefs. Another quick story from Nation and World News. Supreme Court rejects affirmative action case. Washington, the Supreme Court on Tuesday left in place the admissions policy at an elite public high school in Virginia that some parents claimed discriminates against highly qualified Asian Americans. The court's order over the dissent of Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas ended a legal challenge to a policy that was overhauled in 2020 to increase diversity without taking race into account. A panel of the Federal Appeals Court in Richmond had earlier upheld the constitutionality of the admissions policy at the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, a school frequently cited among the best in the nation. Moving on to the longer national and world news stories. Uh, U.S. votes down ceasefire. Most other members of the Security Council supported resolution. Middle East, United Nations. The United States vetoed a widely supported United Nations resolution Tuesday demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war and the embattled Gaza Strip, saying it would interfere with the negotiations on a deal to free hostages abducted in Israel. The vote... in the 15-member Security Council was 13 to 1, with the United Kingdom abstaining, reflecting the strong support from countries around the globe for ending the war which started when Hamas militants invaded southern Israel on October 7th. Since then, more than 29,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's military offensive, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which says the vast majority were women and children. It was the third U.S. veto of a Security Council resolution demanding a ceasefire in Gaza and came a day after the United States circulated a rival resolution that would support a temporary ceasefire linked to the release of all hostages. Virtually every council member, including the United States, expressed concern at the impending catastrophe in Gaza's southern city of Rafah, where some 1.5 million Palestinians have sought refuge. If Israeli Prime Minister... Benjamin Netanyahu, I did not say that right. Um, I want to spell out the last name, N-E-T-A-N-Y-A-H-U, goes ahead with his plan to evacuate civilians and move Israel's military offensive to the area bordering Egypt, where Israel says Hamas fighters are hiding. Before the vote, Algeria's United Nations Ambassador Amar Benjama 
the Arab representative on the council said, A vote in favor of this draft resolution is support to the Palestinians' right to life. Conversely, voting against it implies an endorsement of the brutal violence and collective punishment inflicted against them. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said the United States understands the desire for urgent action, but believes the resolution would negatively impact sensitive negotiations on hostage deal and a pause in the fighting for at least six weeks if that happens. We can take the time to build a more enduring peace, she said. The World Food Program said Tuesday it had to pause deliveries of food to isolated northern Gaza because of increasing chaos across the territory. Hiking fears of potential starvation, a study by the United Nations Children's Agency warned that one in six children in the north are acutely malnourished. Entry of aid trucks into the besieged territory declined by more than half of the past two weeks, according to UN figures. Moving on to the next story, Assange tries to avoid extradition. U.S. authorities want WikiLeaks founder to face trial for spying. National Security, London Julian Assange's lawyers opened a final UK legal challenge Tuesday to stop the WikiLeaks founder from being sent to the United States to face spying charges, arguing that American authorities seek to punish him for exposing serious criminal acts by the US government. Lawyer Edward Fitzgerald said Assange may suffer a flagrant denial of justice if he is sent to the U.S. at a two-day high court hearing. Assange's attorneys asked judges to grant a new appeal, his last legal role of the dice in Britain. Assange was not in court, Judge Victoria Sharp said he was granted permission to come from Balmarsh Prison for the hearing, but chose not to attend. Fitzgerald said the 52-year-old Australian was unwell. Stella Assange, his wife, and Julian wanted to attend but that his health was not in good condition. He was sick over Christmas. He had a cough since then, she told the Associated Press. She said the WikiLeaks founder is following proceedings through his lawyers. Assange's family and supporters say his physical and mental health have suffered during more than a decade of legal battles, including seven years in self-exile in the Ecuadorian embassy in London and the last five years in the high-security prison on the outskirts of the British capital. He was indicted on 17 charges of espionage and one charge of computer misuse over his website's publication of classified U.S. documents almost 15 years ago. American prosecutors say Assange helped U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning steal diplomatic cables and military files that WikiLeaks later published. To his supporters, Assange is a secrecy-busting journalist who exposed military wrongdoing in Iraq and Afghanistan. They argue that the prosecution is politically motivated and he won't get a fair trial in the U.S. If the judges rule against Assange, he can ask the Euro European Court of Human Rights to block his extradition. Through supporters worry he could be put on a plane to the U.S. before that happens because the British government already signed an extradition order. Assange's lawyers say he could face up to 175 years in prison if convicted, though American authorities have said the sentence is likely to be much shorter. 
You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 21st, 2024 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm JJ Gretemeyer from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833. Thank you. On to a different story. Um, Two adults arrested in Kansas City shooting. Police say both hit during shootout after Super Bowl parade. Kansas City, Missouri, two men charged with murder in last week's shooting after the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade were strangers who pulled out guns and began firing within seconds of starting an argument. According to court documents released Tuesday, Missouri prosecutors said at a news conference that Lindell Mays of Raytown, Missouri and Dominic Miller of Kansas City, Missouri have been charged with second-degree murder and several weapons counts in the shooting that left one person dead and about two dozen others injured. Both men were shot during the melee, according to probable cause affidavits. Both have been hospitalized since. Prosecutor Jean Peters Baker said, The argument began when two groups of people grew agitated over the belief that people in the other group were staring at them, according to affidavits. The video showed Mays was the first to begin shooting, despite being surrounded by crowds of people, including children, according to one of the affidavits. A bullet from Miller's gun killed Lisa Lopez Galvin, who was in a nearby crowd watching the rally, officials said Tuesday. That is just a really sad story. Moving to a more lighter note, I'm reading from Lifestyle and Entertainment. This is a humor column titled, Leave it to Geezer. The day after I turned 70, I got an email urging me to buy burial insurance. Now more than ever, it's time to make sure your family is protected, it said. You may qualify for amazing rates on burial policies. I was sure I didn't qualify because I am not, at least so far, dead. But I began to wonder if reaching a milestone, which is better than having a kidney stone, makes advertisers think you are not long for this world. Even if you are still alive, you may be considered so decrepit that you will need to spend all the money you plan to leave for your family, which, in my case, would keep them in the lap of luxury for about a week and a half on such geezer necessities as hearing aids, walk-in bathtubs, liposuction, hernia mesh implants, and knee or hip replacements. I've gotten email pitches for them, too. When I told this to my mother, Rosina, who will turn 100 in November and is sharper than I am, so are houseplants, but that's another story, she said, even I don't get these emails. They must think I'm dead. Granted, mom already has hearing aids, all the better, or worse, to pick up my stupid jokes. Maybe I should take them out when you're here, she said. Her knees give her a lot of trouble, which means she will be sidelined for the baseball season, but at 99, she's too old to get replacements. I'd bounce back from the surgery, she said, noting that she has recovered from several broken bones in the past decade, but I don't like hospital food, so I'll use my walker and do laps around the house. I may be 70, but I'm not too old for a knee replacement, I said. Do you need one, Mom asked? No, I replied. How about a brain replacement, she inquired. I haven't gotten any offers, I said. Keep checking your mail, Mom said. 
it would be worth the money. My wife, Sue, who is my age, agreed. You could probably use one, she said. Since we were about to begin a bathroom renovation, I asked Sue if she wanted a walk-in bathtub. No, she said. What am I, 90? Sue also said she gets emails about burial insurance and knee replacements. They must think I'm old, said Sue, who is very youthful. I admit that we should consider getting hearing aids because we frequently can't make out what the other one is saying. You don't listen to a word I say, Sue will say. I know she says this because every once in a while I am actually listening. Other times, Sue will start to say something while she is walking away. When I don't respond, she will say that I am not paying attention. If I do respond, she will say that she was talking to herself. When I say something, it's usually not worth listening to. And when we are watching TV, one of us will ask the other to turn up the volume. Alarming fact, more than 48 million Americans hear so poorly that their quality of life significantly suffers as a result. One hearing aid ad claims, I hear what they're saying, but I am going to pass up this tempting offer. In fact, I'm going to ignore all the other email pitches I have been getting since I turned 70. Let's print them out, dig a hole in the backyard, and dump them in, I told Sue. Then those annoying companies could pay us for burial insurance. I thought that was a pretty silly column. Another story from this section uh, is called On Nutrition, Brain Boosters. Call it brain freeze. These past weeks of painfully cold weather seemed to freeze my mind as well as my feet. I shouldn't have complained. The frigid weather gave us time to get projects done in the house, but it also made me feel a bit grouchy for no particular reason. Once the weather warmed so my nose hairs didn't freeze when I went outside, my husband gently asked if I'd like to go for a walk. Yes, was not my first answer, but my mind was still working enough to remind me that this might be a good thing. When we got back from taking the dogs down the road and back, my mood was lifted, and so, it seemed, was my brain fog. Studies show that physical activity is actually a mental health exercise. I read one article that states just 15 minutes of walking, especially in the out-of-doors, can boost mood and reduce feelings of depression. I seem to think more clearly after a brisk walk as well and makes sense. As my heart pumps oxygen and nutrients to my working muscles, my brain gets the same benefits. Are there foods that might help our brain stay focused? In 2015, scientists reported on a diet that was found to help slow the gradual decline of cognitive function we may experience as we age. It was a hybrid of the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, dietary approaches to stop hypertension, acutely named the MIND diet, the Mediterranean DASH diet. Intervention for neurodegenerative delay. Foods in this eating style are rich in nutrients and other substances believed to help protect the brain from unhealthy conditions called oxidative stress and inflammation. Researchers from Rush University Medical Center and the Harvard Chan School of Public Health both reported that older people who mostly closely followed this eating plan for up to 10 years had the slowest rate of cognitive decline compared to those who did not follow this plan as closely. A subsequent randomized controlled study in 2023 that followed older people for three years on the MIND diet found no significant changes in cognitive tests compared with controls. This has led some researchers to surmise that the longer we follow this pattern, the better. Here's the general plan daily, at least three servings of a whole grain, one or more servings of vegetables, emphasis on green leafies, and no more than one tablespoon of butter 
olive oil as a main added fat. Weekly, at least five servings of nuts, four servings of beans, two servings of berries, two poultry meals, and one fish meal. No more than five servings of pastries and sweets per week. Remember, four servings of beef, pork, or lamb, and one serving of cheese and fried food. Take it easy on alcohol, moderate intake, no more than one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men may help protect against mental decline, but excessive alcohol consumption is linked to early onset dementia, according to the 2023 research article in the Journal of American Medical Association. That was an informative little bit. This is another section from the Lifestyle and Entertainment. This is just birthdays for February 21st. Actor Gary Lockwood from 2001 A Space Odyssey is 87. Actor-director Richard Boehmer from West Side Story is 83. Actor Peter McEnery is 84. Actor Anthony Daniels, C-3PO, and Star Wars films is 78. Keyboardist Jerry Harrison of Talking Heads is 75. Actor Christine Ebersole is 71. Actor William Peterson from CSI is 71. Actor Kelsey Grammer is 69. Singer Mary Chapin Carpenter is 66. Actor Kim Coates, Son of Anarchy, is 66. Actor Jack Coleman from Heroes is 66. Actor Christopher Atkins is 63. Country singer Eric Heatherly is 54. Bassist Eric Wilson of Sublime is 54. Bassist Ted Kilcha of Blues Traveler is 51. Actor Titus Burgess from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is 45. Actor Jennifer, Jennifer Love Hewitt is 45. Comedi- comedian director Jordan Peele of Key and Peele is 45. Actor Brendan Sexton III, Boys Don't Cry, is 44. Opera and pop singer Charlotte Church is 38. Actor Ashley Green from Twilight is 37. Actor Elliot Page from Juno is 37. Actor Corbin Blue from High School Musical is 35. And actor Sophie Turner from Game of Thrones is 28. Here's a story from U.S. Diplomat Investigations. Secret agent for Cuba? Accused spy pleads not guilty. Damage assessment could take years. Long before career U.S. diplomat Manuel Rocha was arrested on charges of being a secret agent of Cuba for decades, there were some red flags. A recent Associated Press investigation, including interviews with former U.S. and Cuban intelligence officials, found that the CIA received a tip about Rocha's alleged double life as far back as 2006 that Rocha may have been on a short list of suspected spies since 2010 and could have been linked to intelligence from 1987 of a U.S. turncoat known as Fidel Castro's supermole. Rocha was secretly recorded by an undercover FBI agent praising Fidel Castro as El Comandante and bragging about his work for Cuba's communist government, calling it more than a grand slam against the U.S. enemy to hide his true allegiances. Prosecutors and friends say Rocha in recent years adopted the fake persona of an avid Donald Trump supporter who talked through against the island nation. 
As Rocha pleaded not guilty from jail last week to 15 federal counts, FBI and State Department investigators have been working to decipher for the case's biggest missing piece, exactly what information the longtime diplomat may have given up to Cuba. It's a confidential damage assessment, complicated by the often murky intelligence world that's expected to take years. Rocha's attorney, along with the FBI and CIA, did not respond to requests for com comment. Friends and colleagues of Rocha knew him for an aristocratic, almost regal bearing that was fitting for an Ivy League-educated career in U.S. diplomat who held top posts across Latin America, so former CIA operative Felix Rodriguez was dubious in 2006 when a defected Cuban Army lieutenant colonel showed up at his Miami home and told him Rocha was actually a Cuban spy. No one believed him, Rodriguez said, adding he passed the tip along to similarly skeptical CIA. We all thought it was a smear. That exchange took on a new relevance after Rocha was arrested in December and charged with serving a secret agent of Cuba since the 1970s. Here are some key findings from the Associated Press in investigation into Rocha's alleged betrayal and the missing red flags that may have helped him avoid scrutiny for decades. Who is Manuel Rocha? The Justice Department's case against Rocha dates back to 1973, the year he graduated from Yale. The FBI says he traveled to Chile that year and became a great friend of Cuba's intelligence agency, the General Directorate of Intelligence, or DGI. Authorities are scrutinizing the first of Rocha's three marriages that began around that time. According to those who were questioned by the FBI, Rocha was born in Colombia at age 10, moved with his widowed mother and two siblings to New York City. A talented soccer player with a sharp intellect, he won a scholarship for minorities in 1965 to attend the Taft School, an elite boarding school in Connecticut, catapulting him overnight into a refined world of American wealth. But as one of the few minorities at the school, Rocha says he suffered discrimination, something that friends now suspect may have fueled a grudge that led him to admire Fidel Castro's revolution. What did he do for Cuba? Prosecutors ranked Rocha's betrayal among the most brazen in U.S. Foreign Service history, but the 15-count indictment offers few details about what he allegedly did for Cuba. One former colleague, Liliana Ayalde, I'm going to spell that out because I think I said that wrong, A-Y-A-L-D-E, recalled a 2002 controversy in which Rocha, then serving as ambassador to Bolivia, intervened in that country's presidential election to help a Castro protege. Rocha warned Bolivians that voting for a narco-trafficker, a not-so-veiled reference to coca grower turned presidential candidate Evo Morales would lead the U.S. to cut off all foreign assistance. The comments amounted to Rocha's biggest known favor for Cuba. Ayalde, who later served as U.S. ambassador to Paraguay and Brazil, now wonders whether it was an act of self-sabotage done at the direction of a foreign power to further damage the United States standing in Latin America. Now that I look back, she said, it was all part of a plan. Rocha's attorney did not respond to messages seek seeking comment.
what red flags were missed. Authorities are conducting a damage assessment that's expected to take years, retracing Roach's steps and speaking with former colleagues and officials about their interactions with him. Among those they interviewed is Rodriguez, the former CIA operative who participated in the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba in the execution of revolutionary Che Guerva. I'm going to spell that out. G-U-E-V-A-R-A. Rodriguez told the AP that he believed at the time he received the tip from the Cuban defector in 2006 that it was an attempt to discredit a fellow anti-communist crusader. I want to look him in the eye and ask him why he did it. He had access to everything, an angry Rodriguez said. It wasn't just Rodriguez's tipster whom he refused to identify to the AP, but says was recently interviewed by the FBI. Officials told the AP that as early as 1987, the CIA was aware Castro had a super mole burrowed deep in the side of the U.S. government. Some now suspect it could have been Rocha, and that since at least 2010, he may have been on a short list given to the FBI of possible Cuban spies high up on foreign policy circles. The FBI and CIA declined to comment. The State Department said in a statement it will continue to work with relevant agencies to fully assess the foreign policy and national security implications of these charges. This is a monumental screw-up, said Peter Romero, a former assistant secretary of state for Latin America who worked with Rocha. All of us are doing a lot of soul-searching and nobody can come up with anything. He did an amazing job covering his tracks. Now I'm going to be reading This Week in History. February 20th, 1971, en route to record 76-goal season, Boston Phil Espito becomes the first player to score his 50th goal in February, but the Bruins lose to Los Angeles Kings 5-4. Larry Brown of the Denver Rockets sets ABA records for assists in a game 23, half 18, and quarter 10 during a 146-123 home win over the Pittsburgh Condors. Gordie Howie, the NHL's career scoring leader, comes out of retirement and signs a $1 million four-year contract to play with Houston Arrows of the WHA and Sons Mark and Marty. In 1998, Tara Lipinski, 15, becomes the youngest Olympic figure skating champion, beating fellow teen and U.S. teammate Michelle Kwan to take the gold. Lipinski is two months younger than Soja Heaney was in her 1928 victory. 2010, Switzerland's Simon Amman wins the large hill at Vancouver Games to become the first ski jumper with four individual Olympic titles. In 2011, Kobe Bryant wins his record-tying fourth All-Star Game MVP award, scoring 37 points in front of his LA fan base and leading the West past the East. 148 to 143. In 2016, Lindsey Vaughn clinches a record 20th World Cup Crystal Globe title, surpassing Swedish great Ingmar Stenmark. It's Vaughn's eighth t- downhill title. February 21st, 1931. The first MLB night game, the Chicago White Sox play the New York Giants in a 10 inning exhibition in Houston. Dick Button, oh, 1952, Dick Button performs the first triple jump in a figure skating competition. 1960, Philadelphia Warriors rookie Wilt 
Chamberlain sets an NBA record with his fourth 50-point game of the season, scoring 58 in a 129-122 victory over the New York Knicks. In 1992, Christy Yamaguchi wins America's first Olympic gold medal in women's figure skating since 1960, 1976. Midori Ito of Japan takes the silver and Nancy Kerrigan of the United States wins bronze. In 2003, Michael Jordan becomes the first 40-year-old in NBA history to score 40 or more points, getting 43 in the Washington Wizards' 89-86 win over the New Jersey Nets. 2016, Danny Hamlin wins the closest finish in Daytona 500 history. He beats Martin Truex Jr. by .01 seconds. February 22, 1969, Barbara Jo Rubin becomes the first female jockey to win a race at American Thoroughbred bread track. She rides cohesion to a neck victory over really big in the ninth race at Charlestown in West Virginia. 1975, Madison Square Garden hosts its first women's college basketball game in rematch of the 1973 National Championship game. Defending the National Championship, Immaculata beats Queen College 65-31 to before a crowd of 11,969 people. Tennessee's 31-year run Oh, 2016, Tennessee's 31-year run in the AP's Women College Basketball Ranking ends. The Lady Vols have been ranked for 565 consecutive weeks. The streak started February 17th, 1985. And then February 23rd, 1938, Joe Lewis defends the World Heavyweight Boxing title for the second time by knocking out Nathan Mann in the third round of Madison Square Garden in New York. Five-time F1 World Drivers Championship Juan Manuel Fangio is kidnapped by Cuban rebels from Fidel Castro's 26th of July movement. He is released soon after the Cuban GP. This was 1958. In 1968, Wilt Chamberlain becomes the first NBA player to score 25,000 career points. 1985, goaltender Patrick Roy makes his NHL debut for the Montreal Canadiens. 2019, Argentine soccer star... Lionel Messi scores the 50th hat trick of his career as Barcelona beats Sevilla 4-2 in the Spanish La Liga. 2021, Tiger Woods crashes his car driving south of Los Angeles, injuring both his legs. February 24th, 1980, the U.S. hockey team beats Finland 4-2 to win the gold medal at the Lake Placid Winter Olympics. 1989, Panamanian boxing legend Roberto Duran wins the WBC middleweight title, his fourth world title in different weight divisions, when he beats Iron Barkley by a 12-round split decision in Atlantic City. 2013, Danica Patrick becomes the first female to start from the pole position at the Daytona 500. He finishes eighth, the best finish by a female driver. February 25th, 1977, Playing for the New Orleans Jazz, Pete Maravich scores 68 points, settling a, setting a NBA record for a guard. 1991, businessman Bruce McNall, hockey legend Wayne Gretzky, and actor John Candy buy the Canadian Football League's Toronto Argonauts. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for... February 21st, 2024. The Nonpareil can be heard each week at 5 p.m. 
I'm JJ Gretemeyer from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Ralston with an Iris, Iris, Iris short take from the book Iowa Curiosities. Help, help, rescue that seed. Ever try a Cherokee purple tomato or a white wonder cucumber? Ever sampled Jimmy Nardello's sweet Italian frying pepper? That's quite a mouthful. Sunk your teeth into a delicious ear of bloody butcher corn with its dark wine red kernels? Or tasted some rattlesnake snap beans? If your answers are no, no. No, no, and uh, no, it's not surprising, especially if you pick your veggies from the local mega grocery store, Produce Isles, where hybrid vegetables bred to withstand long hauls in places as far away as New Zealand and Chile are now the norm. Their skins are made from transcontinental shipping. 
I'm sorry, their skins are made for trans not, transcontinental shipping. All the above qualify as heirlooms, rare varieties of vegetables, fruits, and grains handed down within families of gardeners for generations. But unlike the family jewels, these heirlooms are available to everyone, from the weekend gardeners to the communal grocer to the commercial grocers. In a free catalog published by the Seed Savers Exchange, a decor-based nonprofit dedicated to saving more than 11,000 endangered varieties of garden seeds from extinction. Founded in 1975, the Seed Savers Exchange, or SSE, was more, has more than 8,000 members, some of whom grow their own heirloom varieties and make the seeds available to the SSE and the public. The Seed Savers Exchange also owns and operates a beautiful 170-acre heritage farm near Decorah which serves as heirloom vegetable patch, rare fruit orchard, and headquarters to the organization. They offer daily tours of both preservation gardens and historic orchard uh, throughout the growing season, where where visitors might see such colorful varieties as boothbees, blonde cucumbers, apple green eggplants, or black sea man tomatoes. You may want to visit in mid to late July, when the gardens are literally bursting with fruits and vegetables, many of which have longer pedigrees than Kentucky thoroughbreds. But before you go, be forewarned, all these poor endangered plants can really tug at the old heartstrings. If you're tempted to save a threatened variety by buying 25 pounds of, say, tapioca-striped maize seed, those purple stripes on the corn leaves are beautiful, aren't they? You could regret it come planting time. The Sea Savers Exchange Heritage Farm Visitor Center at 3076 North Wind Road is open April through December only. Hours are Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. From the junction of I, Iowa 9 and U.S. 52, drive five and a half miles north on U.S. 52. Turn right on North Wind Road. W34, and proceed one mile to the visitor parking sign. Call 563-382-5990 for more information. That was an excerpt from Iowa Curiosities, Quirky Characters, Roadside Oddities, and Other Offbeat Stuff by Eric Jones, Dan Coffey, and Barrett Torkelson.